Well, welcome to our second uh, sermon in our series, An On Earth Peace. Last week, Pastor Brian kicked us off and he invited us to consider how promises, uh, particularly the promise of peace, even though it looks sometimes far into the future, can bring a little bit of that reality into the present. And when Jesus arrived, he was an answer to the promise of peace that the prophets had predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever came. He took us one more, one step closer to experiencing and feeling what it, what it means to have real peace on earth. But what happens when that peace that is so far off in the distance, or let me put it this way, can that peace have a real impact on our present circumstances, on, on the present conflicts that we struggle with and the, the difficult relationships uh, uh, that, that keep that, that the 24-hour news cycle keep alive and that keep us on edge when we go to a Christmas dinner and wait for Uncle Fred to bring up politics or something of the like. At the same time... Is all conflict really that bad? These days in marriage counseling, we don't teach couples to stifle conflict. We we encourage a good kind of conflict. And sometimes conflict can produce good results. 250 years ago, just about 50 miles away from here, a group of Americans dumped a bunch of tea into the harbor because they believed in representation in their government. Just about a week ago, across the ocean, a group of French farmers sprayed tons of manure all over their government buildings because they believed they were being taxed too high. Well, to each their own, right? But not only is there an unhealthy kind of conflict... Unresolved conflict can create negative, sometimes destructive relationships. Maybe questions or uncertainty about a a Christmas bonus has created some kind of tension with your boss at work. Or or what about those of you who are teenagers here? Maybe maybe sometimes you uh, look at your circumstances at home and are uh, and and struggle with. Struggle with the fact that you don't always get to do what you think you should be able to do. And that creates tension at home. Does the peace of God have a place in situations like these? In our daily interactions, in our most personal relationships? And if so, how can we access the peace that Christ promises for the future to be peacemakers in the present? Well, it turns out that days after Jesus left the church, uh, the, the early church was finding its way through some conflicts of its own. A few weeks ago, we spent some time in one of Paul, the, the Apostle Paul's letters, Second Corinthians. And we got a little bit of a taste of uh, some of the surprising conflict, uh, the back and forth that was going on between Paul and this uh, young church. In the back and forth, we learned that this young church was struggling. It had missed on addressing a moral failure in the church. And Paul, he didn't pull any punches. 
in the correspondence that happens between Paul and the church at Corinthian, uh, the church of uh, Corinth, we uh, we learn that the, the the time between the letters could sometimes be long, and Paul was getting a little bit anxious. So he sent one of his representatives to check in on Corinth, and he learned that positively things were going better there, but at the same time, at the same time. There was this tension and there was this uncertainty and he felt like, as we read a little bit between the lines, that Paul was beginning to lose trust and that possibly his words had caused some real hurt and maybe some real damage at this young church in this young circumstance. Well, in the section of 2 Corinthians that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to find some real, real theologically rich thoughts and ideas. But this is also in a very in the context of a very practical situation too, something to keep in mind as we dive in. But before we jump into 2 Corinthians 5, the table is set for us in this chapter in the previous chapter in chapter 4 verse 2 with this statement. Paul says, "We have renounced secret and shameful ways." We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We are sincere, Paul is saying. There is no hidden agenda. Everything that we are, it's right out there. It's in plain sight. We're not trying to manipulate anyone. After elaborating on some of the personal costs that it has caused Paul and his team to to minister to the Corinthians, Paul picks up in chapter 5, verse 11, and that's where we'll spend our time today. And Paul says this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than, than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind... It's for you, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who who live should, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised from the dead. We'll, we'll get to a little bit more of what Paul says later, but for now we just want to zero in and focus in on some of this in, in bits and pieces. And whether this is the first time that you've ever heard those words or you've read these words many times, perhaps your eyes and your ears were drawn to a statement right in the middle of what Paul said there. Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. That word compel in the original language, it's, it's really a, it's kind of a visceral word. It can mean a variety of things. It can mean 
to intensely occupy someone's attention. In some contexts, that word means to cause distress by force of circumstance, to seize. Perhaps Paul, who once attacked Christians himself and was suddenly captured by a vision of Jesus, had a personal connection to a word like this. But what is Christ's love? Or if you're reading from a different translation today, you might see the love of Christ. What is he referring to by the love of Christ that he was seized by? This is actually a little bit of a mystery. Because that word of, well, that's not there in the original language. There is no word there. But there is an important connection. Whenever, just a side tip, whenever you read of in your Bible reading, chances are there is not a word there. Of is kind of a filler word. It's a filler word. And there's usually a little bit more meaning suggested or implied when you do some digging. So what kind of connection is implied there? Well, there's a few options. There's a few possibilities. It could be, first, love from Christ. That's Christ's love for Paul, for his team, Christ's love for us. Love for love from Christ. As the NIV translates it, Christ's love. Well, it could also be love for Christ. That could be Paul's love and his affection for Christ. Or that some say it could be both. And here's the challenge, and this is why this is a little bit of a Bible mystery. In the context, you could make a good case for, for all three of these arguments. So most people are going to say, most scholars are going to say that um, it's Jesus' love for Paul. And it makes sense because right afterwards, Paul talks about the one who died for all. It's an expression of Christ's love, his dying for all. And also it hearkens one of the most famous verses in Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world. And thirdly, it's just true. Christ loves. Christ loves. Well, some say that it could be both Christ's love for us and and our love for Christ. Now, Now, personally, I think this is one of the weaker arguments because I I have a hard time seeing language actually working that way, trying to carry both meanings at the same time. Only rarely do words ever mean two different things in the same place or at the same time. Now, one exception to that is in dad jokes. In dad jokes, yes. Uh, Why was the math book sad? Because it had too many problems. Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. Why don't scientists trust atoms? Because they make up everything. I only know 25 letters of the alphabet. I don't know why. I told my wife she was drawing her eyebrows too high. She looked surprised. Okay, so maybe not all that rare. Some of us use these kind of things a lot. 
But tongue-in-cheek examples of double meaning usually involve humor uh, and not, not cases where we would look for clarity. If Paul meant both love for Christ and love, love from Christ, he probably would have used words to clearly separate that since double meaning instances are usually humorous or intended attempts at humor for that matter. Well, I am attracted to the first, but and I have flipped back and forth, but as I read through the entire flow of Paul's argument here, I'm really I really am convinced at least for now that it's that Paul is talking about love for Christ and that that best fits his argument here. At the beginning, Paul reminds readers that his goal is to persuade others about Jesus. But he's not trying to manipulate or present um, themselves as himself or themselves in a glowing light. They're, they're presenting themselves as living plainly, as, as living honestly. So this young church can look to, to the leaders as, as a foundation in, in a, a situation where leaders were constantly attacked or accused falsely. Uh, so he is, he is trying to make a statement that, hey, we are not doing this for selfish reasons. We're doing this for Christ. Did you notice verse 13? Uh, Paul says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. This is the verse that precedes the love of Christ verse. Now, what is he talking about when, when he says, if we are out of our mind? And the truth is, we don't know. <laughs> We don't know what he means. There's a little bit of a mystery there also. But it's possible that he's talking about maybe instances where Paul prophesied and it felt a little strange or he was exercising some of the mysterious spiritual gifts and it kind of caught people off guard. Uh, whatever, whatever it means, here's Paul's point. He's, he's not doing any of this for himself. His team, they're not doing any of this for themselves. They're doing it for God. They're doing it for the people that they serve. It's love for Jesus that compels them, not self-service. So although all those interpretations could be possible, at least how I'm reading this now, it seems to make sense that he's making a statement about his motives. Who is he doing it for? He's doing it for Jesus. And this is how he elaborates on that. This is how that is made possible. Because on face value, that would seem like a tall task. And Paul explains, when Jesus died for all, all metaphorically died. All metaphorically died. That is, well, let's put it this way. Jesus unlocked a superpower for people to no longer live for themselves. He unlocked a superpower for them to no longer live for themselves, which is kind of the default way of living. It's the most natural way of living for us. It unlocked the ability for us to live for the one who died and was raised again. It wasn't just Paul's attention that was seized. It was his affection that was seized. And that turned, that turned away his attention from himself. That turned away his attention from himself. Well, last 
Thursday night, I was up on a ladder um, near the peak of my house trying to repair an, uh, a line of LED Christmas lights. Have you ever been there? <clears throat> I brought up my handy new LED Christmas light tester with me. Um, I, you know, the proper thing would have been to take the line down, but I did all that work to put it up there in the first place. So I was just going to bring my ladder up and try to fix it up there in the first place. I followed all the steps in the manual. First, I tested the bulbs to make sure that all the bulbs were working and, uh, no problem there. And then I looked at a suspicious area of the line. I replaced it with this little plug that they gave you and, no lights still. Finally, the last thing that I did, which probably should have been the first thing, is to check the fuses. I pulled out my trusty pocket knife. I, I jammed it into the little plug that's impossible to open up. And I finally saw these tiny little fuses that are almost impossible to see, even in your hands. Even more so when it's dark outside. And I took a screwdriver. I jammed them out. I caught them. Thankfully, I didn't drop them. And I, I put them in the Christmas light tester, and they worked. And I thought, well, maybe if I put them in, maybe there was just a loose connection or something that I don't understand because I'm not an electrician. They will they'll, they'll work. So I, I put them back into the plug. I, I jammed them in there with my screwdriver. I shut the door. And I kind of said a silent prayer to myself before looking down at the bottom of the deck, seven feet away. And they still weren't working. And I, I had gone through everything that I knew how to do to fix it. And I just, I just had this emotion overcome me. Ugh, this is never going to end. There are too many things to fix. And there's too little time to fix it all. I don't like not getting things checked off my list. But before I took a step off the ladder, a stray thought, it just, it just hit me. It, this, it hit me taking the wind out of my woe is me. Okay, maybe I can learn something from this. Maybe I can learn something from this. Maybe I won't get these things fixed today. And you know what? Maybe, maybe I can just put them aside. I don't think that stray thoughts like that hit us incidentally. The Spirit brings power to put self-pleasing in all of its forms aside. But the power to do that wholly can only be had when it's replaced with something else. For Paul, for Paul affection for Christ killed his need to please himself. Affection for Christ killed his need to please himself. It killed his need to finish his task list. It killed his need to be liked. It killed his need to win the argument. All of this he was freed from because he was consumed by an affection directed somewhere else. This is why this is important and relevant to our discussion on peace. When, when we are confronted by conflicts, 
We don't have to rabidly protect our own interests, nor do we have to appease or people please. When Christ is the center of our affections, he is also what reorients our priorities. When Christ is the center of our affections, he is also what reorients our priorities. But that's not all. Christ also helps us to see people differently. Let's look at how Paul continues. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, there is a lot to unpack here, and we can't really do it justice today, but let's highlight a few important, uh, few important points. Uh, first, the so at the very beginning of this section tells us that Paul's Christ-centered affection has opened the door for him to see people, to see people in a brand new light. From now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one. That's important. No one. Second, the new creation has come to anyone who is in Christ, which is, refers to anyone who has chosen to align themselves with Jesus. It can't be, we can't regard people in the old way. And, and since Paul stresses that uh, he regards no one in the old way from a worldly point of view, that means that even those who are not in Christ, those who have not aligned themselves with Christ, he views with all of the potential of enjoying life with Christ. Third, all this is because God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, that word in the original language, reconcile, it it means just literally to exchange something. In in the ancient world, it was used for the exchange of money. Like if you went in and had a a Greek dollar and you brought back a Hebrew dollar. Those aren't things. I don't know what the things are. But um, that's it's an exchange. It's turning in one thing for something that is totally different. It's turning in a status of having been a sinner having this ledger of sin that it's a charge against you and coming back with something something totally different the one who had no sin jesus was made sin 
before the eyes of God so that he could bear the consequences for all. There is no record on our ledgers. Last week we were exploring some ways to hide our new peace angels that some of you saw as you walked into the foyer in front of our vision statement. So we, we tried using these, these glue dots and we tried sticking them on the ceiling. It was a Thursday night. We hung 10 peace angels up on the ceiling. By the next morning, seven of the peace angels had fallen. <laughs> fallen angels. Those glue dots, they just didn't stick. They just didn't stick. And that's like our, that's like our debt of sin. When we are in Christ, it just doesn't stick. It just doesn't stick anymore. We're freed. We're liberated. God does not view us through our sins. He does not regard us in a worldly way. Through Christ, he sees past them. And here's the thing. In our relationships with other people, God invites us to do the same. God invites us to do the same. And we can see people from a new perspective. We don't have to bring their ledger to different situations that we find ourselves in. We don't have to view them as guilty parties. Everyone we encounter is a new creation or someone with the, the potential of becoming one. A loving focus on Jesus unlocks a fresh look at the people he died for, paving the way for peace. Uh, let me say that again. A loving focus on Jesus unlocks a fresh look at the people he died for, paving the way for peace. I know that New Englanders have a hard time understanding me, but uh, I'm kind of a college football junkie. I don't have time to watch all the games, but I'll check the scores afterwards and pretend like I did watch the games. Uh, sometimes I run into a good uh, football story for fodder, and um, I ran into one recently. Often we think of rivalries as happening between teams, but in the early 90s, a college defensive back by the name of Toby Wright considered incoming freshman Mike Minter to be his rival. And here's how he commented. We were rivals at the position, and I rarely talked to him and glared at him. And you know how it goes. We went through all that stuff because you're the young Model T and I'm the old one and your time will come when I'm leaving. What happened was during the season, Coach D was switching me and Mike off and, and I'd get really steamed and mad. I wanted to play every down. I mean every down. Well, early in the season, Toby hit a quarterback near the sidelines and it was almost a late hit it didn't get flagged but his position coach was was mad and he called it reckless he he pulled him to the sideline and he put mike in for him he put mike in his place and, and there he sat steaming on the sideline and some different coaches a little bit further down the sideline looked around and said where's toby why isn't he in the game so they sent toby back in the game to replace mike 
And then the position coach said, hey, what, what's going on here? And he went to talk to the other coaches. They kind of collaborated. And then they sent the signal to bring Toby back in. And Toby was like, uh, are you crazy? I am not getting out of this game. He and Mike crossed paths, and there was a little bit of a scuffle on the field. It almost cost the coaches a timeout. It didn't. But at halftime, uh, Toby made his feelings known. He, he said to Mike, we're going to deal with this after the season. Well, the season went on, and uh, during one game, uh, Toby had his dad in attendance, and uh, during, the ha- during, during halftime, he brought him into the locker room, and Toby was introducing his dad to the different players. But once he hit, once he hit Mike's locker, he just skipped over Mike and kept moving along. And eventually they sat down, and Toby noticed that his dad had his eyes on Mike. And Toby said, why are you looking at him? And Toby's dad kept looking at Mike and said from across the room, hey boy, what's your mother's name? And Mike said something like Ophelia or whatever. And Toby's dad turned to Toby he said, boy, that's your cousin. Toby said, no way, I was going to tear him apart, dad. And his dad turned to him and said, no, boy, that's your cousin. And they became good friends after that. If Mike and Toby could resolve differences through a familial connection, through the revelation of a familial connection. What could God do if he opened our hearts to see spiritually in the relationships sometimes difficult that we're in too? Could he bring peace to an argument uh, with a spouse around work that keeps coming up? Could he bring healing to some hurt from a long-time friendship? Could he be calling you into some uncomfortable relationships so that he can grow and stretch your love for him? Well, we like to talk about next steps at Christ Church, and we, we don't like to be hearers of the word only. So let me offer just a few practical next steps that you can take wherever you might be on this journey. During Jesus' last moments with the Apostle Peter, he asked him a question that, that, that Peter was initially offended by, in part because he asked him this three times. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Now, there's more to it than that. And, and in the context, it has to do with restoring Peter, who previously denied Jesus three times. But I, but I can't help but wonder if Jesus wasn't also inviting Peter to take another step to, to go a little bit deeper in his love for Jesus in that moment, an invitation to love Jesus wholeheartedly. And perhaps that's a question that we can ask ourselves too, not to impose guilt or shame or assess all the ways that we don't measure up, but to but to bring the gift of affection for Christ into every area of our lives. Our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. That's where it starts. And, and for some of you here, maybe, 
Maybe this is the opportunity for it to start the first time. Second, having set our affection on Christ as as a goal, identify wants and desires that sit behind the conflicts that you're currently facing. Ask yourselves, what do I really want in this situation? Identify not just the desired outcome, but the emotion behind the outcome and and possibly even the fear over not achieving whatever outcome that you feel like is important so that you can better assess what you are bringing into the conflict and invite God to possibly bring some healing for yourself and better position you to be present in that situation. Lastly, take a step toward the other person. Uh, And let me qualify that before I even go any further. There are always situations that are different. And there are complex realities, and and there's nuance in all of this. So these aren't a a once-for-all-in-every-situation kind of application steps. But sometimes this is the right thing to do. Take a step toward a person in conflict by surfacing their positive desires and intense and humanizing them for the new creation that they are or the new creation that they can be. If we get caught up in the mechanics of the argument, as we're all prone to do, we'll fail to see the other side. But if we see the person and, and if we really see the person and if we can surface the emotion behind the situation, we have a better chance of, of building a connection to them and quite possibly quite possibly even becoming an avenue for someone's connection to God. A loving focus on Jesus unlocks a fresh look at the people he died for, paving the way for peace. As much as we love the holidays, this season can be difficult and it can be filled with relationships that are hard. And it could be a season full of conflicts. But they don't have to end that way. Armed with the affection affection for Jesus and, and the people that he died for, we can bring something new and life-giving into these situations, into these relationships. Earth may not know peace in its final form, but we can bring peace into it. Starting with the people around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift and the opportunity to love him, to see him as he is. And we pray, Lord, that wherever we're at today, that you would open up our hearts, that you'd soften our hearts to see the loving hand of Jesus working in our lives pouring out his affection, bringing his care, showing his love so that we can enter into difficult situations and bring that same love to the people around us. Lord, help us to be peacemakers. Help the world to have peace and use us to be peacemakers wherever we're at and in whatever place that we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name.